I were to take a show of hands this morning, I won't because some of you may <clears throat> have your boss here, but if, if I were to ask you how many of you have had a job that essentially seemed pointless and, pr- oh, okay, well, we got one hand that goes up, <clears throat> pointless and purposeless to you. You just, you got up every morning, you went, but you really weren't sure exactly what the whole point of it all was. Maybe you just thought, this this may be valuable to somebody, but it's just not valuable to me. I, I don't see the point, really, in what I'm doing. Maybe you've had a job like that. Maybe you've taken a class like that. Now, I know we've got some college students here and some who remember their time in college. We've got some high school students. We've got some teachers. It's going to get a little uncomfortable for our teachers. But I wonder how many of you have ever taken a class that you just thought, what in the world is the point of this, you know? I remember taking humanities. Now, if you're a humanities teacher, I love you in the name of Christ. But humanities, to me, when I was a senior in high school, was the most pointless thing in the whole world. Now, I have a little more appreciation for it now, a little. But it was awful. Oh, my goodness. And, I, you know, and God love her, I had a teacher that was just... She just wasn't that good at teaching humanities. And I, she was really sweet, and I liked her, and her daughter was in my graduating class and all that, but I just, oh, second period. So it was early. And I remember one day sitting in humanities class, and I was in the front of the class. I have no idea why I was in the front of the class in humanities, but there I was in the front of the class, I guess maybe alphabetically. And I'm sitting kind of like this on my desk and listening to my teacher talk about Aristotle or Plato or somebody. I don't know exactly who she was talking about. And I started to kind of drift off to sleep, you know. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments where you, you wish that you could have been sitting in the back of the classroom, but I had some sort of piece of paper or something under my right elbow. And as I began to drift off, of course, my head got pretty heavy. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden that paper starts to go and and eventually it slips, and, 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 and not only did I just kind of, you know, I didn't bang my head on the desk, thankfully, but it woke me up, and everybody's looking at me, and there goes the paper just kind of floating. You know, what do you do in that case? I, I couldn't tell my teacher, you know, I'm sorry, but this is really, you know, pointless. It's, it's interesting when you've got a job or taking a class or doing some activity that you just think really has no purpose. It's really easy to quit those kinds of things. It's real easy to give up on them and say, you know what, I, I, I'm not going back to that. I have no desire to continue. Easy to quit when you don't know and you don't understand the purpose of what you're doing. We've all had situations like that. And I really think that spiritual activities are the same way. I think it's difficult to endure and to continue in spiritual activities if you don't see the real purpose in those if they almost seem to be pointless or fruitless in your life, it's difficult to endure, difficult to continue to do them over and over. And yet, isn't it true that if you've spent any length of time in church whatsoever, you have been told to do certain spiritual things. Some of those, though you wouldn't want to admit it, because maybe some of you have been in church a long time and are still wondering what the purpose is, Sometimes you wonder, well, I know I should do that, but, but what's the purpose? And 
I, I guess I, I, I need to continue doing that, but it just doesn't, doesn't seem to have much of a point to me. Studies show that many young people, when they become of the age where they are enabled more and more to make many of their own choices, typically around their college age years, many of them, not all, but many, will stop going to church. And it's not really because they're angry or because someone did something that was hurtful. Those are, those are certain cases. But the majority of the, of the young people that leave the church do so because they don't see the point. They don't see the purpose in that spiritual activity anymore. It has not become vital in their lives. It has not become a connection that they can't live without for whatever reason. Going to church is certainly like that. And I, I really do believe as we look and continue in our series that we started a few weeks ago, I believe prayer is like that as well. I believe there are many people who get started praying and, and eventually they come to, to know that it's something they should do, but they're not really sure why. So they quit. Or they just go through the motions. Maybe they don't understand all that they're doing or why they're doing it and they, they give up. Today we're going to learn what Jesus taught as the foundational purpose in prayer. Not the only purpose, but the foundational purpose of prayer and why this particular purpose makes prayer absolutely vital to the Christian life. Now, each week during this series, we've started in Luke chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible handy, we're going to look in two different places this morning. One is a springboard and the other is our scripture that we'll focus on. Luke chapter 11, and we're going to look here just at verse 1. Now, your version may be a little different than the one I'm reading, so we'll put that on the screen behind me for you to follow along with if you need to. But as I always tell you, I encourage you, bring your Bible to church. If you don't have one or don't have a copy that is readable to you, then please let us know. We'd be happy to hook you up with one, find you a place that you can get one or whatever is needed. Luke chapter 11 has been our theme verse for this entire series in verse 1, it says he, talking about Jesus, was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus launches into a lesson after this on prayer. And that's really our goal in this entire series. If you wanted to, to learn how to play an instrument, you would go to someone who is an expert in playing that particular instrument. You wanted to learn how to be an artist, you'd find someone with great experience and talent in that particular area. You wanted to get yourself in shape and gain strength, you'd go to somebody who knows about physical fitness. And the same is true in prayer. If you want to learn about prayer, you go to the one who was the expert, the master prayer. We go to Jesus Christ and we ask the same question, pose the same statement to him, Lord, teach us to pray. That's our that's our goal through all of this. So we're learning from the master of prayer, and we have covered so far certain elements of the Lord's teaching on prayer. We saw a few weeks ago how he placed a high priority on prayer. God in human flesh, the Son of God himself, comes down to earth, and you would think if anybody has an excuse not to pray, it's him. And he prays all the time, constantly in prayer. But we also learned the, the different problems that we can have in prayer, pride and so on being being our issues. And, and three weeks ago, before we paused the series, we looked at the, the posture of prayer. How can we approach God? And we learned that because He is our Father, we can approach Him with eagerness. 
And because he's our Father in heaven, we approach him with awe. And this morning, we dig a little deeper into what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to see in Matthew chapter 6, so flip over to the left, Matthew chapter 6, digging into the Lord's Prayer, we find Jesus here teaching and giving us a foundational purpose for prayer. You ever wondered why in the world do we do it? What's the foundation? What can keep me going? What can keep me motivated in prayer? How can I endure in it even when sometimes it gets difficult or I don't know what to say? That's what we'll learn from Jesus this morning. I've often wondered why it is that people do pray. What's their motive? What's their goal? We took a survey recently that many of you participated in, and the results of that were pretty interesting. Now, numbers can mean whatever you want them to, but, but it became evident through that survey of, of prayer here at Elm Grove that most of the people who responded believe that prayer is something that is very important, given uh, the fact that you pray on a regular basis, some every day, uh, some more than once a day, some uh, several times a week, many uh, once a week. But on a regular basis, we are praying. Uh, most pray in a position that's other than kneeling. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago, you may remember. Most pray silently, but we pray on a regular basis. Most that responded to the survey feel that their prayers are at least somewhat effective because you indicated that your prayers seem to be answered on a pretty regular basis. Maybe not always exactly the answer you're looking for, but you do get an answer uh, to your prayer. But the most interesting part of that particular survey was the question that related to the purpose of prayer. What it is that you believe is the primary purpose in prayer. Now, there were 65 responses to this question. What is the most important purpose of my prayer life? One response said to express your own intentions. So to tell God, here's what I'm planning to do. Well, at least you're honest. Three of you said the purpose of prayer is to improve your own life. Five indicated that the main purpose of your prayer was to help others. Ten indicated that the purpose of prayer is to gain greater intimacy with God, to get to know Him better. Sixteen of us said that the primary purpose of prayer is to thank God for your blessings. And thirty, which was the largest number, but not necessarily the majority of responses, thirty of, of us indicated that the primary purpose of prayer is to seek God's guidance. Now, those are just numbers, and I could do anything that I wanted with them. I'm just telling you, here's, here are the responses. But I think they give some indication uh, of to, uh, as to what we believe is the real purpose in prayer. Uh, in general, obviously, it looks as if our prayer lives center on thanking God for our blessings and seeking His guidance, looking to Him for what we should do. What's also interesting was another question that was listed on the survey, and it pertained to why is it that you think your prayers are not answered? All but one response and there were a total of 79 people who took this particular survey. All but one response on that question, why are your prayers not answered, do you think? All but one said, because it's apparently not part of God's plan for that particular prayer to be answered. Interesting uh, in the sense that, that we sort of have an idea of how our prayers relate to God's plan for our life, and and I think for many of us, we probably understand that in a proper way. But I wonder if for others, you're just frustrated by that. Well, I'm praying, but it appears like nothing I'm praying for is part of God's plan. See how that might get a little frustrating. What is then the true purpose of our prayer? Jesus gives us the answer. Let's look at it in Matthew chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9, 
he's just given us the problems in prayer. Don't be like this. Don't do that. And then he says, here's how you should pray. Verse 9, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some translations add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He gives us here in these verses at the end of verse 9 and beginning of verse 10, teaching his disciples what is the ultimate purpose in prayer. He says, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done. He teaches us that the real purpose in prayer is to yield to God's agenda instead of mine. To yield to God's agenda instead of mine. That is the foundational purpose in prayer because he begins this prayer talking about the Lord and His name and His kingdom and His will. Directing us to yield to His agenda instead of ours. Now that may seem simplistic to you. But I really believe that it's not only profound, but also, as we'll see, extremely difficult to pray that kind of prayer, to have that sort of attitude. And I really believe that if this truth about yielding to God's agenda instead of ours does not become foundational in our prayer lives, that we'll never know true intimacy with God, that we'll never experience consistently answered prayer. Now, this can seem as a statement, your, your agenda, Lord, instead of mine, as maybe for some to be discouraging, or maybe even fatalistic. But I really believe that the Scripture shows that God's agenda, when we yield to it, is far better, and it brings far greater joy than any agenda that we can have could ever bring. So let's look at these verses just a little bit more as we, uh, as we kind of get into this. Now, it's evident, if you look at verse 11, give us today our daily bread, forgive us our debts, uh, do not bring us into temptation, deliver us from evil, and so on. That the scripture here, Jesus is not prohibiting that we bring petitions and requests to the Lord. We'll look at that next week. So that's not out the window. So don't assume uh, that you cannot do those things or that somehow you're wrong if you're asking the Lord for certain things. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. What I'm trying to say is the foundation for prayer that Jesus is teaching is not us asking God for certain things. That's not the foundation, the primary focus. We look at what his agenda is and we yield to it. His agenda is that his name be honored. His name be honored. This is the beginning of yielding to God's agenda. He, Jesus says here, your name be honored as holy. Most of your versions probably say something like hallowed or hallowed. That's a fancy, nice word, isn't it? I love that Bible word. Hallowed be thy name. That preaches. I ought to change my voice and preach like that. Hallowed be thy Y'all would really be impressed with that, wouldn't you? You'd wonder what's wrong with me. But that's the way that most of your versions probably put it. I, I happen to like this particular translation on this verse because I think it kind of gives us an idea of what does that word hallowed mean? Your name be honored as holy. To pray this prayer is to hold the name of the Lord in high esteem. To do nothing that would dishonor His holy name. Now, some of you may know that the Jews refrained from even speaking the name of the Lord, Yahweh. They wouldn't say it. Because they considered it so holy that sinful people should not even say it. Because even by saying it, and perhaps uh, even pronouncing it the wrong way, 
that we would somehow defame it or defile it. And it's in this passage that Jesus thankfully tells us we can address God as Father, but we, just like those ancient Jews, need to revere His name because it is holy. Now, revering a name like that is really probably, for many of us, a foreign concept. A name is just a name. For some in here, you've got the same name as a lot of people. I don't know. I mean, I, I remember in second grade, I went and got the shock of my life when I walked into my second grade classroom, and I didn't know where to sit because there were two of us named Brad Burns. Two, right there together. I just, you know, think of it, seven years old, it just floors you, you know. You just think you're unique somehow. You're the only person with your name. You know, it's been a downhill slide since then. But, <clears throat> but uh, I remember walking in there, and, and there we were. And, and, and I became that year Bradley J. Burns, and he was Bradley P. Burns. And interestingly enough, we went to second and third grade together, and then he went to a different school, and I went to a different school, and we came back together in the eighth grade. And we, and we had to figure it all out again. We played Little League Baseball together on the same team most of the time. You talk about confusing. We actually became pretty good friends. So he'd spend the night with me. My mom would holler, hey, Brad, and we'd both turn around. No, no, Brad Burns, we both turn around. And we, I mean, he got a little confused at, you know, at some point. But, you know, for, for most of us, that's your, that's your pattern. Your name's just a name. It's just something you're called. It's just, your parents preferred it. They liked the sound of it. It went well with your last name, whatever it may be. For most of us, we don't have a name that really means anything. Now, I've told you before that Nancy and I, with our four children, we tried. We tried to make their names mean something. Um, Lucy and Nora's names both mean light. Hank and Duke both mean leader. And so our prayer for our children is they would be lights and they would be leaders for the Lord. Now, uh, it's different, though, in that sort of deal um, because their names describe what I hope they'll become. God's name describes what he always has been, who he is now, and who he always will be. You see the difference? Even relating something to my own children pales in comparison to the name of the Lord. In ancient times when this was written, this particular scripture, a name represented something about the person. Represented their character, maybe their reputation. Certainly we know that God's name represents who He truly is, that He is eternal, that He's perfect, that He's holy, that He's powerful, He's loving, He's sovereign, He's gracious, and so on. Exodus chapter 3, Moses gets introduced to the Lord and he says, who are you? And God says one of the more strange kind of things in all the scripture, he says, I am who I am. Okay. Imagine yourself being Moses. You know, we just, we gloss over that and we picture Charlton Heston or somebody standing there at the burning bush and, you know, I am who I am. God is revealing himself by his name. He is the self-existent sovereign God of the universe and he says, that's who I am, and here's my name to prove it. The Old Testament gives us further names of God. Maybe you've done a study on these before. A name like El Elyon, God Most High. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord my companion. They're over and over and over. God continues to reveal himself both by what he does and by his name fullness of his character and his nature found there in his name. Even the name of Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, <laughs> reveals who God is and his purpose for sending his son into this world. And so given the significance of the name of God through the Old Testament and to the time where Jesus spoke these words, there's little surprise then that Jesus would say, let me tell you something, in your prayers, you honor the name of the Lord. 
because it represents all of who He is. So in prayer, we come to God with humility and reverence, recognizing who He is and who we are as sinners. We pray for His name to be honored and to be hallowed in all the earth by all people. We pray that the Lord's name would be glorified and given its proper place in the hearts of all men and women. We pray that through His name that God would reveal Himself, His true character, to each and every person here on this earth. Even in places where His name is currently defamed or defiled. Laura mentioned that in Turkey, there are a thousand believers. The name of God is not honored there. And we should pray that it would be. Now, there are some stipulations to this sort of prayer. I'll just tell you this. I'm not going to leave you with, go pray that the name of the Lord will be honored. That's part of it. But it's not all of it. Because by necessity, when we pray that the name of the Lord will be honored, our names and our agendas need to take a back seat. They need to become secondary concerns. Old Testament examples of this include uh, at the Tower of Babel. Maybe you remember this, Genesis chapter 11. Uh, these folks gather together and they say, let's make a name for ourselves so that we won't be forgotten and they're going to build this ginormous tower so that everybody who passes by it will remember them remember what God did there he scattered them all changed all their languages thwarted all their plans because they had disobeyed him and attempted to make a name for themselves not for him Daniel chapter 4 records that King Nebuchadnezzar stood on his patio there and looks out over his kingdom and says, What a great kingdom I have accumulated for my own sake. God made him, literally made him crazy. Swift and harsh punishment from the Lord for a person who gave no credit to the name of the Lord. What the Lord's name represents, his character, his thoughts, his fame, must take precedence over what we can accomplish for our own name's sake. It's interesting in the scripture over and over, those who elevate their own names, their own agendas over the Lord's, find themselves subject to the opposition and the discipline of the Lord. It's a very dangerous thing to elevate your own agenda above His. And it's no different today than at the Tower of Babel or in Daniel chapter 4. We still have the tendency to seek our own fame. We still have the tendency and the desire to be noticed, to be praised, to be promoted to look for validation from those around us. We still have the tendency, don't we, to, to put ourselves and our pursuits ahead of honoring God and what He wants. So we must pray as Jesus instructed that the name of the Lord would receive attention and glory no matter what we might accomplish here on this earth. We honor His name by doing that. Another stipulation in this, if you think about it, if we are to honor His name... We must, do, we must renounce and, and avoid anything that dishonors His name. We dishonor His name by attaching ourselves to any actions or situations that the Lord wouldn't approve of. We claim attachment to His name. Well, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord. And yet then attach ourselves to things that we know are sinful, the things we know the Lord would not approve of. If you think about it in human terms, you would not want your name attached to something you didn't support. If you were to, to not, let's, just, let's, let's put it in, in terms of, of what we saw unfold yesterday, which for many of you was a, was a scene of horror. As the University of Louisville was triumphant 
You knew it was coming. You knew, you knew, it, you knew it was coming. Wait till basketball season. There you go. That's what we're, we're really all saying that. <laughs> but, and that just simply proves my point. Does it not that when your team is down, you don't want your name attached to them anymore? I don't really know. I'm not that serious about football season anyway, right? You know, I've said that a few times in the last couple of years when Louisville's really been awful, and now they're both awful, and I don't know. I'm pulling for Murray State. So I'll attach my name now to Murray State. We jump on the bandwagon, don't we? We don't want our name attached to to anything that we wouldn't approve of, that we don't want to be associated with. God is the same way. God doesn't want his name attached to a person who's going to do whatever he wants to do with whomever he wants to do it, whenever he wants to do it. It's not the way that God wants to operate. And as believers in Jesus Christ, if that's you, the Lord's name is permanently attached to you and is seen wherever you go and in whatever you do. So we've got to be very careful to not dishonor the name of the Lord by what we approve or what we disapprove. And so if we're obedient in prayer, then we will pray that the name of the Lord will be honored as holy, that He'll reveal Himself in our world, that He'll be worshipped by us and by our church and by others, that He'll raise up men and women who will boldly proclaim and represent the name of the Lord, that we'll attribute to Him what is already His, holiness and honor and glory and power, that we'll arise from our time in prayer determined to make honoring the Lord's name a renewed priority in our lives. We honor His name by conforming, letting ourselves be conformed to His will. We honor His name when we study, when we work, when we speak, when we think, when we minister, when we write, sing, serve, whatever it is that you do. We honor His name when we do all those things for His glory and for His fame. We honor His name by denouncing and avoiding anything that's disobedient to His word. And when the name of the Lord is honored in our lives, we are aligned with His holiness. And we experience the fullness of His presence, the fullness of His joy, and all the implications that come with the the name of the Lord. Honoring the name of the Lord as holy is this first part Jesus lays as this foundational purpose for prayer. And He goes on to a second element in verse 10. He says, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. The idea here in God's agenda is that His kingdom be experienced. His kingdom doesn't represent a geographical entity. You can't draw it on a map. We're talking about the realm of the entire universe that God rules. This element of the Lord's kingdom has both a now and kind of a not yet element to it. It it can be experienced now, but it's not yet fully consummated. The full consummation of the kingdom of God we know in the book of Revelation happens when Jesus returns to rule here on earth, and that's the full consummation of the kingdom of God. At a time only known to the Father, Jesus will return, unless you're in that kingdom of God that John describes in Revelation. And Jesus certainly has that in mind when he's speaking to to the disciples here. He knows he will come back. And then, just like now, many longed for the kingdom of God to be ushered in in that way so that evil would be destroyed. Many of you have prayed the prayer, Lord, come quickly. (laughs) It's not an illegitimate prayer to pray. We have no idea when that will be. Many have guessed, and all have been wrong. (laughs) We have no idea when it will be, but it's not an illegitimate prayer to pray, Lord, come quickly. (laughs) Lord, now would be a great time. (laughs) It's not illegitimate to pray that. And one day he will indeed return and fulfill the prophecy in Revelation, and he will reign forever. 
But that future kingdom, obviously, is not all that Jesus has in mind here in this prayer because there's a now aspect to the kingdom of God. Jesus, appearing on the scene in Matthew chapter 4, says, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He ushered in the kingdom of God. Everywhere that people responded to His offer of salvation, the kingdom of God grew. And even today, as people respond to that offer of salvation by God's grace through faith, the kingdom of God expands and it grows. So there's a sense in which the kingdom of God that he's talking about here is a present reality and also, we know, is a future reality. And so since it's obvious that the Lord's kingdom has not fully come, we pray for it to continue to expand. Even now, and certainly pray for its consummation. But there are stipulations to this prayer, just like praying that the name of the Lord be honored. If you're going to pray for the kingdom of God to come, then you must align yourself with the priorities of God's kingdom. This is not just some little phrase that we tack on to a prayer, we just recite. So when we pray like this, our prayers must include the lost souls in need of salvation. That's how the kingdom expands, therefore we pray for God's kingdom to come. By implication, we pray for what will expand His kingdom. I wonder who you know that will spend eternity apart from Jesus Christ in hell. Who do you know? And when's the last time you prayed for Him? Some of you pray every day. I praise God for those folks who, who every day go to the Lord on behalf of lost people. Praise God. But I realize it's not 100%. And my, my, my deep desire is that 100% of the people in our church would pray for lost people. I realize that, that some do every day. And I realize that some have not prayed for that during your entire existence as a Christian. I'd love for it to be 100%. All of us aligning ourselves with God's priorities. I really believe this must be a priority for us as individuals and certainly for us as a church. If we're not broken and praying for the lost, I really don't believe we can be in obedience to the, the, the instruction here of Jesus in praying your kingdom come because that's how it expands. If we're not focused on praying for those who desperately need Him, I wonder can we really say if we love God because He loves those people. Can we really say that we want God's kingdom to come if we don't pray for conversion growth? Another element of this particular kingdom expansion happens in the lives of believers also. As commitment to the Lord increases, His kingdom comes in a more real way in our own lives. As His dominion and His rule increases in every aspect of who we are, He must be Lord of all of it. Our entirety belongs to Him. The external expansion of His kingdom involves the saving of souls. The internal expansion involves our increased commitment. So we pray against our selfish inclinations that get in the way of God's rule. We give any thought, any temptation, any habit, any pattern, any character trait, not under His control, to His rule. We pray for God to reveal in us anything that's not under His power and His control. Well, that's easier said than done. Because we're human... And most of us, most of us, I won't say all, because I don't know, but most of us have at least one or two areas that are really off limits to the Lord. Yeah, I'm a Christian, and I, I'm going to be there at church, and I'm, I'm going to read my Bible, and I'll pray, but that's about as far as I'm going, because <laughs> I'm not really willing to let God go there. Part of this prayer of, Lord, your kingdom come, 
means that we begin to open all those doors to the Lord and say, you know what, you kill in me anything that's not of you. Kill it. Destroy it. Take over. Rule in my heart. Now that may sound harsh. To say that every single part needs to be ruled by the Lord. It may sound harsh for Him to come in and do that, but it's the most freeing action that you can undertake. Because once He's, under, once he's in control, there's freedom from the penalty and power of sin. There's fulfillment for your relationships that's not possible apart from His control. There's help in your addictions that you face each and every day. There's strength in your struggle against temptation. There's unspeakable joy even in the midst of difficult times. So we pray for His kingdom to expand, and not only that, we join Him in His kingdom work. We pray for lost souls, but we join Him in telling those lost souls about their sin and about their need for Jesus Christ, the forgiveness found in Him. And as a church, we, we must make and continue to build upon making, reaching lost people, not just a routine prayer request, but the heartbeat of our mission. It's why we exist as a church. It's why we're here. It's the mission of Jesus for the church, is to reach lost people, to disciple them, to lead them to a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. So everything we do, from our worship service to our Sunday school classes to our, our fellowship events, all is meant to make disciples of those who are already here, those who are not yet in our body. So that's how we yield to God's agenda, by wanting to experience His kingdom. And finally, we see Jesus says, Your will be done. His name must be honored, His kingdom experienced, His will be done. Now, if we consider that the bulk of our prayers, if you're honest, are probably focused a lot on you and what you want. Now, you say, well, you, who are you picking on out there? Well, I'll just I can turn around and preach all this to myself too, okay? If we consider how selfish many of our prayers are, this last little part here, His will be done, is probably the more difficult part. Yeah, absolutely. I want the name of the Lord to be honored. Yeah, I want lost people to find Him. Not so sure about His will being done in every aspect of my life. Not so sure about that. Can I really say that that's what my heart's desire is? To pray that God's will be done implies that I've yielded my own will to His. That I actually desire for His will to be accomplished in the world, in our church, in my life. Well, it's clear, obviously, that the Lord's Will is not always done. People still sin. People still reject Him. People do evil things. We still have selfishness. Of course, we know that His ultimate plan for the world, His ultimate will, will certainly be done. We see that in Scripture. But what He desires for His creation, for His children, is not always done. And that's what we pray for. That's why Jesus said, pray for God's will to be done. His will is that lost people come to repentance. His will is that His children obey Him completely. His will is that holiness would trump evil. His will is that hardship would be endured by our commitment to Him. So we pray for His will to be done. We pray for His desires to become our desires. We pray that evil would be conquered, that we would be holy. You may say, well, I'm not so sure about this whole will of God thing. 
Romans chapter 12 describes the will of God as perfect and pleasing. Not just to the Lord, but also to us. As our Creator and as our Savior, God has the best in mind for us. His will is always good toward us. Not to our detriment, but to our our blessing. And so when we yield to God's will instead of ours, it brings us to a place where we can experience God's best for us. And if not, we're simply fighting against it, whether we realize it or not. The final part of verse 10 says, On earth as it is in heaven. Now those who study the Greek language can debate whether that particular statement is attached only to the Lord's will being done or to all three of these things, His name being honored and His kingdom coming and His will being done. And I suppose that, that you could narrow it down just to His will, but there are some who argue it applies to all. If you consider how God's name is honored, how His kingdom is experienced, how His will is done in heaven, and if our prayer is that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that carries some major, major implications. His, his name and His kingdom and His will are done in heaven without any hesitation whatsoever. Consistently, all the time, with joy. You consider that, and if our prayer is, Lord, Your name be honored as holy, Your kingdom be experienced your will be done on earth. We could pray that prayer right there. But he doesn't stop there. He says, as it is in heaven. Changes the ballgame. Because then reluctance and hypocrisy and our unwillingness to go along go out the window. <laughs> because we pray, Lord, I don't care what it means. I don't care what it takes. My reluctance is gone. My hesitation is gone. I want to join like those in heaven who follow your will and honor your name and experience your kingdom with an unwavering attitude, who do it completely, sincerely, willingly, fervently, readily, swiftly, and constantly. Maybe that's the most difficult part of this whole particular prayer. Sure, God wants what's best for our lives, but are we willing to submit to his agenda without any strings attached? It's a tough one. Are we willing to submit constantly as those in heaven do? Are we willing to say to the Lord, have your way. Have your way, no matter what. Do what you want. Do what is important to you. Become the central figure in my life, regardless of what it means. Now, for some here today, this is a radically different teaching on prayer from anything you've heard. Not because of my fancy words but because of what it really means to pray this prayer. Isn't it amazing that this has been in the Lord's Prayer all along? All along, those implications have been there. And to think that this prayer is just mindlessly recited over and over and over again by sports teams, by people, by whomever, just mindlessly recited, and we fail to see the implications of what's really here. I wonder how many individuals, even in here, are willing to pray this prayer now that you know what it means. I hope it's 100%.
I believe God could change this community if simply one church would get on board with honoring his name, with experiencing his kingdom, and with seeing his will be done. I honestly believe that not only is our community in need of change, for God's glory but it can happen if just one church would get on board incredible blessing awaits if you will pray this prayer as if you truly mean it I wonder how many of us are willing to do that how many churches are willing to pray that prayer really convinced that many, many church problems that we experience are related to <clears throat> a lack of yielding to God's agenda instead of our own. How many church conflicts have you heard about, read about, seen maybe, in churches you've been in, I don't know, that stem from personal agenda rather than God's agenda? It's a shame. Consider all those arguments and all those confrontations and divisions. Consider how many churches fail to really do anything, make decisions for the Lord because they Maybe even they fail to see kingdom growth because they're just not willing to yield to God's agenda. How many individuals don't see what God wants for them in their own lives because we're unwilling to yield to God's agenda? It begins in this type of prayer. I, I, I want to challenge you this week. Maybe just experiment for seven days. To pray this prayer and to live out the implication. Just one week. Just one way. I can't guarantee what God's going to do. But just one week, pray that His name would be honored as holy. And then get busy honoring His name. Pray that His kingdom would be experienced and then get busy working on behalf of His kingdom. Pray that His will <clears throat> would be done and then get busy doing the will of God that you already know to do. It won't be easy. I'll tell you that. The world does not like it when God's name is honored as holy when his kingdom is experienced, when his will is done. Your human nature does not want to pray this prayer or get busy participating in the implications. But I encourage you to persevere, knowing that you are achieving the ultimate purpose in prayer by doing so, that's yielding to God's agenda instead of your own. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, we pray that as Jesus instructed that your name would be honored as holy among us, that we would be about honoring your name. We pray that your kingdom would be experienced in and through us, and in and through this church, through the saving of lost souls and the growth of believers. We pray that you would see your will be done whatever pleases you in us and in our church. Today, Lord, we yield to your agenda in our lives and in our church instead of our own. We pray in Jesus' name.